Uh, hello, my name is Kirsten, if we haven't met, and I'm on the pastoral team here at Living Waters. When I was a kid, there was a fairy tale that I loved called The Snow Queen. Disney took the idea of a snow queen and ran with it to create the character Elsa, but that's pretty much all the similarity you'll find between this story and Frozen. The story I'm talking about describes a magic mirror that only reflects what is evil and hateful. The mirror in the story splinters into millions of tiny pieces that fall all over the world, getting into people's eyes and hearts, freezing their hearts into unfeeling blocks of ice and making their eyes like the mirror itself, seeing only the bad and ugly in people and things. Two of these splinters land in a boy named Kay, one in his heart and one in his eyes. And those tiny glass fragments change everything. He is suddenly unable to see beauty in things and the people around him. All he notices are their imperfections. And he is no longer able to value and love the people closest to him, including his best friend Gerda who is the hero of the story. Kay is only saved when his dear friend Gerda finally finds him. He is icy and heartless, but as she cries over him, her tears of love wash away the splinter in his heart. Kay once again is able to feel, and when he cries tears of joy, the fragment in his eyes is washed away. Finally, his eyes are healthy and able to see clearly and his heart is healthy and once again able to love. Fairy tales can make truths plain. For me, this one draws out one of the essential challenges of being a broken human being. We are all vulnerable to getting something in our eyes, something in our hearts. That something distorts our perceptions of reality and makes it challenging for us to recognize what's beautiful, what's good, what's true. It can make it easy for us to miss the goodness of God. Our text for today is all about that something in our eyes, our capacity as broken people to not see clearly. We have been in Luke 11 for the past couple of weeks, and we've been following one long conversation between Jesus and the crowd. This conversation begins when Jesus does what he often does, set someone free from demonic oppression. Once he does, a man who is mute is suddenly able to speak. When this happens, the people are amazed, which is not surprising. Many other times the crowd is amazed at what Jesus does. Not everyone in the crowd, though, is amazed. This time, the crowd begins to turn on Jesus. Some are skeptical and want proof. Now, they don't want proof that the exorcism has happened. No one in the story is questioning that. They had just seen a man released from demonic power, joyfully set free to use his voice. What they are skeptical about is where the power behind Jesus' ministry comes from. And so, some of them accuse him of being in league with Satan while others demand that he do yet another miraculous sign to prove who he is. This is not necessarily the response that Jesus was hoping for. 
You can hear his frustration in his responses, and I can understand why. Jesus brings the goodness of God to people, healing and setting them free. And he's met with suspicion, doubt, and slander, really. I mean, the creator of the world has just been called the servant of Satan. That's pretty bad. If we're dealing with the Greek, if we had been dealing with the Greek god Zeus here, you'd probably see some lightning bolts flying. But this isn't Zeus, it's Jesus. So he speaks the truth to the crowd that he knows they need to hear. Knowing that hearing and accepting the truth he speaks to them, even if it's difficult, is their best chance of them accepting him and the goodness that he has for them. First, he uses logic to explain that it makes no sense for him to be in league with Satan when he's setting people free from demonic power. Doesn't it make more sense, he suggests, that what is actually happening is that someone even stronger than the enemy has entered the scene? And then, in the passage Dave shared out of last week, Jesus rebukes the crowd for asking for a sign, for even more proof that he is who he says he is. The only sign they will get, he explains, is the permanent sign, the sign of Jonah. The only sign of his identity they will receive is that he will die a criminal's death on the cross and be vindicated by his physical resurrection from the dead. If you really want proof of who I am, Jesus essentially says, just wait. At the end of that reproof is our text for today which explains why this group of Jews who had waited for the Messiah their whole lives stand before him without even realizing it. It all comes down to the fact that there's something in their eyes. Let me read Luke 11, verses 33 to 36. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also is full of darkness. See to it then, then the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Let's unpack the imagery here. What is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus begins by reminding them that light serves a purpose. No one lights a lamp without the intention of letting it be seen. A lamp is lit so that people can see. Light shows us the truth about things. So much so that when we talk about coming into the light, we are referring to the act of walking out of falsehood into truth. Light shows us things. The first sunny day in a while is always a bit of a shocker for me. On mellow, rainy days, I think my house is pretty clean. And then I get up on a bright, sunny morning, and I discover just how dirty my windows are and just how much dust is in my living room. Light shows us things. And because of how it shows us things, light is used in the Bible as a metaphor for goodness. God is light, 
1 John 1 tells us, and there is no darkness in him. Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 8. And then in Matthew 5, he turns around and uses that same term of us. You are the light of the world, he tells us, like a city on a hill that cannot be hid. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father. After pointing out that light serves a purpose, Jesus applies the image of a lamp to our eyes, calling them the lamp of the body. And this can be a bit of a confusing analogy for us. We know how the eye works. We know that our eyes don't create light but receive it. Our eye, technically speaking, is a receptor. The eye is only the lamp of the body in the sense that it is through our eyes that we receive light. However, the Greco-Roman world didn't know that this was how the eye worked. Instead, they believed that the eye actually emitted light that came from the body. So for the person in the first century, this image would have made perfect sense. Jesus here is using imagery that his hearers could understand. The eye is the lamp of the body that enables a person to see. Then Jesus starts to mess with this image when he points out that not all lamps are in the same condition. Your eye is the lamp of the body, but Jesus suggests that we make sure our eyes are actually doing our job because it's possible that our eyes could be unhealthy. And when our eyes are unhealthy, it's very possible for the light we think we have to actually be darkness. And that is a rather chilling thought. Earlier in verse 29 in the passage, Jesus says that it's an evil generation that asks for a sign. Uh, that word evil is the same word that we find in verse 34, and that's translated here as unhealthy. This parallel use of the same word points to a connection between these two thoughts. And if we put these two thoughts together, we come up with Jesus's central point. This generation is evil because its eyes are unhealthy. One of the most disconcerting things to remember about this story is that the people in the crowd that were skeptical of Jesus, who claimed that he was in league with Satan and tried to make him prove himself, these people thought they were doing the right thing. They likely thought that in their skepticism of Jesus, they were honoring their faith and honoring Yahweh. How heartbreaking that he was right there in front of them. Jesus calls us in this passage to make sure that the light we think is within us is not actually darkness. Or to put it more bluntly, tread carefully because you may be wrong. Jesus is calling us here to a posture that I would suggest is central to the Christian life, one of dependence. And not just dependence for the strength to make it through our days or for the capacity to love people around us, not just a dependence on Jesus to help us to do the right thing, 
but a dependence on Jesus to discern what is false and what is true. Luke said a few weeks ago that Jesus is in the business of turning hearts inside out. And this doesn't just involve our emotions and our loves. It also involves our assumptions, our perspectives, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of the world around us. We've used the image in this series of sifting through the contents of a backpack with Jesus. We have within that backpack a host of perceptions and assumptions about the world, ourselves, about the people we love most. This time of preparation for Easter that we're in is a time of looking at our perceptions with Jesus, to give him the space to show us where our thinking is distorted or broken. Now, I want to acknowledge just how countercultural of a process this is. Our culture teaches that we discover truth not by looking outside of ourselves, but by looking within ourselves. The more internal our process of determining who we are and what we think, the more genuine and truly authentic we are as people, our culture says. A sense of identity or conviction that has been formed from something beyond ourselves is viewed by our society as inauthentic. That's why we hear people say things like the term, my truth. They're speaking of their own personal belief and putting the stamp of truth on it in order to give it the authority of truth. And in the process, of course, they end up defining truth in a way that runs completely countercultural to counter to any historic understanding of what truth actually means. Our society doesn't think we should be dependent on Jesus to know who we are and what truth is. But we as Christians are a peculiar people. We always have been. And we approach our understanding of what it means to be human with two fundamental assumptions. First, we know that we were designed to be in relationship with God. God never intended to make people and then leave them alone. This whole crazy enterprise of making people was out of the overflow and the abundance of the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God wanted to love more, so he created us, made in his image, in order to love us, to know us, and to be known by us. One of the most fundamental biblical concepts of what it means to be human is that we were built for dependent relationship, and that this dependence doesn't diminish or hinder our growing. It's actually a catalyst for growth. We were never meant to be on our own. For us as people, to grow into dependence on God is to grow up. The image of people in the garden before the fall is one of dependence on God. We did not fall from independence into dependence. We fell from dependence. So we were designed to be in relationship with God. And the other assumption that we approach as we look at this 
is that we have learned the hard way in our world that we are a broken people. A biblical understanding of that brokenness is that there is no part of our personhood that is not impacted by sin. So that means that our self-understanding is broken, our emotions, our thoughts, our bodies, our will. And this is where we come to the statement Jesus makes in this passage. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. With our broken bodies, minds, and emotions, it is completely possible for us to think the darkness in us is actually light. In one of the most significant moments of coming out of brokenness in my life, I heard the Lord say very clearly to me that because of sin in my life, I was kind of blind. And I needed to take extra pains to trust the believers around me who were speaking truth in my life. If I hadn't listened to them, even when they said things I didn't like, things would not have gone well with me. These two biblical realities of what it means to be human, that we were built for dependence and that we are broken, help to define our posture in life. We do not walk with a self-sufficient understanding of the world. We walk with an open and listening heart, dependent on Jesus to keep our vision clear. We walk with an awareness that the splinters of our own brokenness have the capacity to distort our vision. Our anger and our wounds, our arrogance and perfectionism, our pain and our pride, our fears and our passions, our selfishness. Thankfully, we are not responsible to clean up the darkness in our hearts on our own. <laughs> when Jesus calls us to make sure that the light within us is not darkness, he calls us into an active posture of listening to him. A regular rhythm of allowing his spirit to be our vision, giving him ample opportunity to bring true light in the place of darkness. So what does it look like to leave this kind of space for Jesus to reveal and cleanse the unhealth in our eyes? Well, first I would say that God does this work as we read and listen to his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Years ago, I had the privilege of listening to New Testament scholar Gordon Fee at a retreat. I remember him talking about preaching, and he said, The text stands in authority over me. I serve the text. It wasn't just the words he said, it was the way in which he said them. Behind that simple statement was a lifetime of coming under the authority of God's word, allowing it to penetrate his life and judge the thoughts and attitudes of his heart. Later on when I was at Regent, I got to know Gordon Fee and I saw the fruit of that life. I saw the fruit of a life lived in yielded obedience to the word of God. It was, very, it was so beautiful to see. God's word is not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a gift. 
a great gift that keeps us grounded in what is truly real. God's Spirit uses it as a tool to show us when we to begin to drift, to clear up the distortions in our vision, and to show us when we are in danger of making our God and our faith something other than what it truly is. And as we read and yield to God's Word, the Holy Spirit builds in us a love for the truth. And this love for the truth is the foundation for a life that is filled with light. Secondly, God does this work of clearing up our eyes when we spend time with God's people. God clarifies our vision through one another, and he speaks to us through the wonderful messiness that is church life. One of our values here at Living Waters is authenticity. It's a value because we believe Christian community was intended to be a place where we could learn to be fully ourselves with one another. We believe that church wasn't meant to be neat and tidy. It was meant to be honest and gritty, to be messy, even uncomfortable at times. If authenticity isn't happening, we miss out on so much of what Jesus intends for us in our life together. And we miss out on the chance to learn from the incredible diversity among God's people. Because when I come alongside someone else in our community and truly seek to know them, I learn from them, and they learn from me. Jesus ends up speaking to me about how my perspective is skewed as I listen to believers who are different than me. That's why it's actually a good thing for us to be in life groups with people who are different from us. It clarifies our vision and builds a humble heart that is willing to listen and learn. One of the challenges of the past few years during the pandemic is that we have often been isolated without a diversity of people to challenge our perspectives. We need to engage meaningfully into community life again because Jesus clarifies our vision through community. And finally, God clears the unhealth from our eyes as we spend time with him. There's nothing like silence with Jesus to show us the landscape of our hearts. When I think of silence, uh, the image I always have is of a garden. Um, my interior life is a messy garden, especially when I haven't been spending time in silence with Jesus. Weeds are everywhere, and everything needs pruning and tending to. But if I sit with Jesus, he begins to bring peace and order like the master gardener he is. Weeding and trimming, making things right, bringing clarity and peace. In that process, Jesus clarifies my vision. It isn't always an easy process, but I will say that Jesus is my favorite person to show me where I've been wrong. No one else knows me so well or is as able to speak a true word in a way that is infused with hope. I love that about Jesus. He simply knows how to speak truth in a way that enables me to receive it. And so I'd encourage you to let him in. And maybe the best prayer that we can response, pray in response to today's text is the one we find in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray this prayer as we worship today. Let's pray it in the coming days. And as we allow him to heal our vision, we will be increasingly like the hopeful ending of our scripture today that says, Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Let's worship together.